Well, good morning, church. It is so wonderful to see you, to hear from you, to hear you sing again. Good morning to those of you who are online. Um, last week, Pastor Mark and I were talking about how we just need to uh, wait until after we've watched the news on Saturday night uh, before we write our sermons because um, our world is changing so much, amen, and you never know, quite know what's happening it's kind of mind-blowing. Uh, I tried to address uh, some of the issues that our country is facing in my email. At the time, it felt like enough. I'm not sure that it was, but um, uh, I'm not always sure that we always need more words. But I think what the church needs to be doing in these trying times is really uh, more doing. And uh, I think what we can do is, is to continue to pray for healing and righteousness and and for a clear gospel call for all of us to repent and to allow God to, to change us and to change our hearts. In fact, uh, last week our bishop, uh, one of our bishops, um, Swanson, who's an African-American bishop from Mississippi, said that in the end that, that what we're facing, that racism really is, a, is an issue of the heart. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. And, um, and the more holy that we... The, uh, we are, the more we, closer we draw closer to Christ, that the more God can change us. And, and so that's exactly what we're going to be talking about over the next uh, nine weeks. We're going to be talking about how we can grow more in, in our spiritual lives. A few years ago, one of our uh, members, Jeff Spanbauer, shared with me how the Enneagram personality uh, tool had helped him to grow in his faith life. And so he encouraged me to take the test as well. I did and, and found a lot of good insight into what motivates me, what, what drives me. And then last year, my wife took it and went to a workshop, and she learned a lot of things, which I think has really helped us in our marriage. We've been married some 40 years, but, but, but still, you know, you're always constantly, daily learning new things about each other. Have you discovered that? And, um, and so last August, our teaching team decided uh, that we were going to use the Enneagram as a tool uh, for a sermon series. And so over the next nine weeks, we're going to use this tool to help us move into a more holy uh, life. But first of all, let me just take a moment and, and explain to you what the Enneagram is. It is a categor categorization tool that classifies human personality into uh, a typology on nine interconnected personality types. It's very similar to the Myers-Briggs or the DISC, or strengths finders, which corporations and businesses have used for years to help train their employees. Now, no one quite knows when the Enneagram began, which is interesting. Some think that it goes back uh, centuries, but no one's really sure. Uh, the symbol uh, up here on the screen reminds some people of a pentagram, which, of course, is a symbol sometimes used in occult groups, which makes Christians uh, nervous. Uh, but the word Enneagram comes from the Latin, Ennea 9 and Gram diagram. And, and, and so it, it, the diagram re representing the Enneagram that you see is simply made up of lines that show the connection between the different personalities. For example, uh, threes at times have similar personalities uh, to the six and, and to the nine, which is demonstrated up there for you. The Enneagram became popular in 1997 
uh, by Don Rizzo, a Roman Catholic who used it in spiritual formation and developed the indicator type. In the last few years, it has found its way into Protestant groups and is really a hot fad right now among uh, young uh, people, young Christians. Uh, so I encourage you, take the test. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun, and the series will mean a lot more to you. But even if you don't want to take it, that's fine, uh, because you'll get a lot out of the sermons. And you will most likely uh, hear yourself described, or one of your friends or family members will hear you being described, and you'll figure out what your number is. You, you may be a little sore by the time you leave here today. If we're somebody, they'll keep kind of punching you, saying, oh, that's you. Um, you know, that, he's talking about you today. But if you do take the test, it will help you understand what drives you. It will help you understand your temptations, your core weaknesses, uh, when you are at your worst, when you are at your best, and then what spiritual practices can help move you into this change, into this transformed life. In a word, it's about how God has made you uniquely you and how he's made others that you love unique. You see, our uniqueness has both advantages and disadvantages. We have healthy versions and we have unhealthy versions of ourselves. And they impact our relationships with each other and, of course, with God. When we take time to know and understand ourselves, we'll be better equipped to fulfill the mission and purpose God has for us. And so we, we begin today with number one, the reformer. As you saw from the video, I am a number one. Reformers are sensible, responsible, self-disciplined. They love order. They are ethical. And they feel personally obligated to improve both themselves, those whom they love, and to improve the world. They desire to be good. Uh, to live up to the highest ethical standards, to affect positive change in the world. And they're often dedicated to justice and social causes because they feel personally obligated to leave this world a better place. You see, ones want to be right. They want to strive higher. They want to be consistent with their ideals, and, and they want to be beyond criticism so as not to be condemned or judged by anyone. Ones don't like to make mistakes. They do not like chaos. And they do not like to be in situations which are out of their control. A lot of ones are kind of control freaks. And they're not particularly comfortable with um, emotions and, and feelings. They don't want to be embarrassed by emotional displays. So ones are at their best when they know the rules and the expectations when they're able to do things at a high level of excellence, and they oftentimes challenge others to do the same. One of the things the staff hears me always ranting about is, hey, guys, let's, let's improve our excellence. We can do this better. And, of course, ones love it uh, when their perspective and their voice is heard and appreciated. Ones are at their worst when they don't know what to expect, when the rules keep changing, when things aren't black and white, or things change suddenly so they're not able to be at their best. Can you imagine how ones dealt with the COVID-19? 
when suddenly all of their plans uh, had changed and, and they were trying to bring order back into themselves, into the world. I can promise you there was a lot of tension in the homes of the ones. Ones can be rigid, perfectionists, opinionated. But they can also be gracious and wise, highly principled, and self-disciplined. And they will work hard to improve things. But they can also focus sometimes on insignificant things, like closets. Ones are nothing if not organized. My shirts, my clothes, and my closet are organized by season and by style. My underwear and my socks are folded and put away in a tidy manner. A place for everything and everything in its place is one of my mottos. And sometimes if I open up the trash and I see there are things in there that should be recycled, I dig them out, I rinse them out, and I put them in the recycling bin. Why wouldn't everybody do that? Why don't people see things my way? And at work, if I uh, find someone left their K-cup in the coffee machine, I will take it out and throw it away, but then I'll have bad thoughts the rest of the day about that person's character. I once cleaned out the, 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 break staff, uh, the, the, the staff's uh, break room refrigerator, and I was so sure that everybody would thank me and be so grateful. But they weren't. Evidently, I threw away somebody's cottage cheese that had turned black, but they were sure that there was some purpose that they could use it for, maybe penicillin or something like that. And during the shutdowns, I kept encouraging the staff to clean up closets and rooms that accumulated junk. I don't know why, but when I see things neat and in order, it makes me feel less stressed. Now the good news is, as I have aged, I have learned to give up imposing my high standards on others. I'm content to let my little piece of the world uh, be perfect. You know, my perfect lawn, my perfectly clean car, my tidy office. And if other people want to live in squalor, <laughs> I can live with that. Now, neatness and order are comforting to me, even the small things. It makes one feel safe and less anxious. Yeah, they want to tackle the big issues too, but a lot of times for them it starts in their little corner of the world. And irritated doesn't begin to describe how it makes me feel when people don't see things my way. It's hard to believe that others aren't interested in joining my crusade to make the world a better place. Why don't people care as much as I do? Do I have to do everything myself? And, resent, and, and, and so uh, resentment turns to anger, and anger turns to judgmentalism. In fact, anger is what ones struggle with the most. It is their besetting sin. Feelings of obligation and of having higher standards than those around them leaves ones oftentimes in a constant state of irritation with others, with their world, but mostly with themselves. You see, 
Ones have this inner voice that constantly tells them they don't measure up. So imagine how they feel when someone passes along negative feedback. They don't take it very well, but the reason is that for the last seven days, 24 hours a day, they have already been hearing that inner critic criticize them. And it makes it hard for them to give feedback. I mean, I'm terrible at it. No matter how hard I try, there's always this air of self-righteousness in my tone. And when people at work or at home do clean up after themselves, do you think that the one would compliment them? Nope. They just find out the one thing that you didn't clean up. And just to be helpful, they point it out to you. You see, the truth is, is that reformers have high expectations of themselves that they can never reach. And that inner voice never goes away, always telling them to work harder and do more. It makes it hard to relax or to have fun. So, does that sound like any of you here today? Do you live with a one? Or do you know one? Did you know that the Apostle Paul was, uh, was a one? Yeah, both before and after his Damascus Road experience, he was a reformer. I mean, he had a strong desire to do right and, and to be right. And he was willing to take a stand for what he cared about. And as we learned just a couple of weeks ago, he was willing to die for it. But I think the best example of a one that we have in the Bible is the story of the prodigal. It's found in Luke chapter 15. And you know the story, perhaps. A man has two sons. And the younger son one day decides he's had enough of living under his father's roof and his older brother. And so he asks for a portion of his inheritance. And he leaves town. The Bible says he squandered his inheritance in desolate living. And hence he's called the prodigal. And he loses everything. And he finds himself in desperation. But he has a moment of illumination. The Bible says he came to himself. He came to himself. And in that moment, he thinks about his life back home. And he misses his father. And he misses his family. And, and he realizes that even his father's servants eat better than he does. And he decides to return home. And as he travels home, he practices his humble pie speech of how he's going to repent when he sees his father. But his father sees him before he does, and he goes running out the door and down the, the driveway and down the road. And before his son can even get out his, his, his speech of repentance, his humble pie speech, his father hugs him and he says, this son of mine was lost and has been found. He was dead but he's alive again, and he welcomes him home. You see, the son knew what he deserved, but he got just the opposite from his father. Now, that's not the end of the story. Let's uh, hear the rest of it, found in Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Oh, your brother has come, he replied. 
And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf. You sense the anger, the deep anger? Why is he angry? Because he's worked hard all of his life for his father. He says, I've been slaving for you. You see, he's kept the rules. See, elder brothers believe that God owes them a comfortable and good life. If they try really hard and and live up to God's standards, they follow the rules. They have done things the right way. And so they say, my life ought to be going really well. I should be married to the man or the woman of my dreams. I should have my perfect job. I should have perfect children. I should have perfect health. But when things don't go as planned, they get angry. And they think it's not fair. It's not right. Why is this happening to me? And they become resentful and they blame God. Now, of course, they never think about the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life and And he died for it. You see, here's the trap that elder brothers, that the number ones, fall into. They obey God as a means to an end, as a way to get the things they really love. It's not their relationships that are important. It's the things that they love. And so it's a relationship that's based upon work and reward and and not love. Ones have a flawed sense of of expectation. God owes them because they've been dutiful. They've been obedient. They've kept the rules. And, And the Father, He owed judgment and condemnation to the one who had not been obedient, who had squandered His inheritance. And so for ones, their world is a world of duty and justice. And so what ones need to remember is grace. That God loves to to bless people who don't deserve it. In fact, that's his very nature. But it goes against everything that ones believe. It's it's a real stretch for for ones to accept God's grace and mercy that he would ever give somebody uh, a second chance, those who come up short of God's holiness. And it causes so much confusion and misunderstanding among all church people, but particularly for us ones. See, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, verse 8, what grace is. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so we don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Simply put, grace is a free gift of God. And once a one begins to understand this, and once a one begins to live into this, it will free them up like nothing else will. So how do ones grow? How do ones grow 
um, closer to God? How do they grow in their relationships with others? I want to mention just a couple of things. And I think the most important thing is this, that, that they begin to understand that this grace is offered freely. I don't have to earn God's love. I don't have to earn God's approval. That I receive it as a gift. Ones need to understand that, that they don't have to be perfect for God to love them. Ones need to say this every single day, Jesus, you are perfect, and I don't have to be perfect to be loved by you. One of the things that I try to practice is, is every day to, to affirm the people around me, to look for the good, because I'm really good at seeing the bad in people and pointing that out to them, but not so good in the other. To, to look for the good things in people and, and the good things in situations and then to intentionally express gratefulness and thankfulness for the good and affirm the good in other people. Another thing that ones can do is every once in a while, you don't have to do this every day, but every once in a while, let other people be in control. I know that sounds crazy to a one, but and to remind themselves that, that, that you're not in control, that, that God is ultimately in control. One of the things you might try is, is to have a blessing list, that every day write down your blessings. What are the good things that you see in yourself? What are the good things that you see in others? How has this world blessed you? And then finally, ones need to learn how to practice being playful. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a spiritual discipline to me. That sounds more like goofing off. You see, ones know that it's hard work and, and effort that pays off. But once a, lear, once a one begins to learn how to relax and to enjoy themselves and to enjoy others, it will actually make them a more holy and more loving person. Instead of always trying to, be, to make everything better, instead of trying to make everything right, to simply focus on being fully in the moment. This is one of the hardest things for me, but I'm learning, and it's changing me. And if you live with a one, you can show your love to them by appreciating the order that they bring to your life. Now, I know that they're also trying to fix you, and that's okay. Ones can be very annoying to live with, but understand that the efforts that they are making to improve things actually comes from a deep desire to make your world a better place for you to live in. And what they want to hear from you is simply this, I love you because you're a good person. And so what I'm saying to you once today is that the Christian life is not a life of rules. The Christian life is a life of freedom. That Christ died and rose again to set us free. And maybe you've been trying to live the Christian life by following somebody else's sets of rules or standards. Or maybe you by, by trying to do good or be good or, or, or trying to feel bad, make yourself feel bad. But that's not real Christianity. Real faith in Christ is built on God's grace. We're graced people. And the life of Christian discipleship is a life of grace. 
At every point in our journey, we are recipients of grace. And that grace begins the moment you take your first breath, and it, and it never ends. Not even after you take your last breath. That grace goes on for eternity. There's no place in your pilgrimage where you can say, God, thank you, that's all the grace I need. I can take over from here. Never happens. The grace of God pursues us. Grace assures us that we're forgiven people. Grace saves us and enables us to respond to others in trust and obedience. And grace transforms us into the very image of Christ and enables us to be graceful to others. And grace, as the old hymn goes, it is grace that will lead us home. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ones in our life who bring order, who remind us of high standards, who um, are trying to change the world. Thank you, God, for how you've made each and every one of us unique and different with our different gifts and our talents and, and our strengths and even our weaknesses. Oh, God, um, Help us on this pilgrimage towards holiness. Help us, God, to, um, to put ourselves in your grace so that we can be changed people, so that we can become whole people, so that we can become a free people. Speak to us today, God, of your marvelous message of life. Help us to say yes to that grace, we pray. Amen.